difference is when it comes to the live thing is that, you know, instead of us just being some dudes up on the stage, you know, wearing these big leather boots and shit or something with jewels on our jacket, you know, feeling like we're up on some stage, you know, you know, we we're so cool we can't reach these motherfuckers. The whole point of the deal is I'll reach we, out, kiss you, them all. You jump out there, kiss you them know, all. You fucking, you know, we're actually a fan along with our friends. No you doubt, know? man. You bring we, us, you bring us to a priest show. Look out! You take us to a prom show. You take us to any band that we like, man. We're gonna be on the front row. I'll be doing nude flips off the stage. Yo, Steinbag, going down, catch a jacuzzi sesh, rock the hut. Right here, right here, Canada. This is me in Denmark. Hey, this is me in Berlin. Hey, this is me in London. This is me strapped in Europe. This is me in Akron, Ohio, with my bud, throwing the cam on me just in case I get hurt by the police. Hey, man! This is me in Barcelona. This is me at the Santa Monica Fish Company. This is me in New York. This is yours truly, Dimebag. Um, just got ripped off in Atlantic City. This is me in uh, Sergio, Sergio Valente, uh, Italy. This is me in Atlanta, trying not to feel it too hard. DC, out in front of the Capitol building, Capitol Hill. Moscow. This is me at the flea market somewhere in Europe, lost as usual. Here it is, look. God damn it, get that Rex. Get it, Rex! Welcome to episode three, three, three of the Thunder Underground podcast. Trent here, and as you can see in the title, or as you would guess, this episode had to be Pantera specific. If for some reason you're a moderate fan or not a big fan of Pantera and you don't know why, just Google it. I'm not going to get into that. But if you're a fan of Dimebag, Vinny, and Pantera, and even later with Hell Yeah, all that stuff, you get where the 333 comes in. And in full transparency, I've been putting this off for a while. You know, there was a kind of a gap there, and then I did the last episode, 332, with Kevin Martin of Candlebox. Check that out if you haven't yet. I've been trying to get someone very specific onto this episode, I was trying to get either Chad Gray or Rex Brown, because I thought, you know, how perfect would that be for episode 333? But I was not able to pull it off in time. So maybe down the line, we'll have either of those guys on there. I'd love to talk to both of them. But then I thought, all right, I need to get just get someone I know on here to talk about Pantera with me. And I thought the first person that popped in my head was Michael Thrasher, who's been on this podcast a few times. He uh, helped me and Jason go back, you know, not that long ago, a few months ago. We went back and to our memory vaults, basically, and discussed when we saw Page and Plant live in 1995. And also Thrasher was on here whenever I interviewed Vanilla Ice. You know, there's a 
something totally opposite of Pantera there for you. But anyway, Thrasher was with me at most of the Pantera shows that I went to. I think probably all of them, except maybe now that I'm thinking them through, I don't know, maybe he was at all of them. But especially the first one, which is the main one I wanted to talk about. But so I was going to kind of use this episode to just maybe focus on, you know, the live aspect of seeing them live and. You know, because me and Jason did an episode, it's been over three years ago now. Well, actually, four years ago now, we did uh, Pantera every album in a row, which is a series we did where we would discuss a band's entire catalog, and we put that on YouTube in 2017, the Pantera version, and then we re-released it as a podcast episode after Vinnie Paul passed away in 2018. And on that episode, of course, we talk a bit about Vinnie Paul, and then we go into the every album in a row. So, I mean, we've done that. It's been a while, of course, so I could have gone through that again, but I'm not going to rattle through, you know, my thoughts on all these albums and just the music in general, because this is a band that's been discussed a million times over by a million different people. You know, I'm one of them, and I'm sure if you're listening, you're one of them as well, but there's not really much to delve into on that aspect that's new. You know, it's always great to get someone's opinion or someone else's view that maybe we haven't. But, you know, flipping, going back real quick to to Thrasher, he was not able to because he's out of town this week. So I'm going to do this myself, which maybe will be interesting. Maybe not. We'll find out. If you listen to it and you like it, that's great. And if not, I apologize. But I really, you know, it doesn't hurt my feelings, and I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. So, anyway, before I jump into all that, and I want to let you know that this Saturday night at the Canes, no, not at the Canes, I just went to the Canes last night, which is why that's on my mind. So, side note, I saw the Blues Brothers. Yes, those Blues Brothers. Well, of course, one of them, because as you know, John Belushi has been gone a long time. But his brother Jim Belushi stepped in, and him and Dan Aykroyd put on a show at the Canes Barroom in Tulsa last night. A full, it was about an hour and 45 minutes, a full set of blues classics. Ones you know from the, from the film, from their albums, a few other covers. You know, they played Natural Woman, which of course... They didn't sing. One of their band members did. They played Hard to Handle. And some other blues classics. And, I mean, they sounded excellent. You know, so it was a really cool experience to be able to see that. You know, I mean, that's a movie that's been a part of, you know, our lives for the majority of our lives. You know, myself, since, you know, it came out whenever I was a little kid. And so, by the time I saw it, you know, it's been a part of my life forever. And never really thought I would see that in a live setting, and to see Dan Aykroyd, who is now, I think he's around 70, you know, get up on stage in a live setting like that, pull off a great show, and I mean, these are two guys that are obviously primarily known as actors, because that's what they are, and, but to see them do that in a live setting, and pull it off with no issues was great, they were here promoting the fact that they have a company that they've partnered with you know, some growers and some 
a chocolate company in Oklahoma to make some edibles for Jim Belushi's cannabis company. So they were kind of doing a tour of dispensaries in the area and then, of course, capped it off with that show. A sold-out show at the Canes, so very glad to be able to see that. I'm sure there will be video online soon because they had a lot of... They were out there, they were filming it, having it professionally filmed, so I'm sure this stuff will pop up soon enough. So I'd love to see that back. But before I get off on that side tangent, what I was going to say is this Saturday night at the Shrine in Tulsa, Grind will be performing with Severmind, Unwritten Rules, and Greenhorn Saints. This show is only 10 bucks. The Venue Shrine is a great place to see shows. Throughout the history of this podcast, we've talked about it a multitude of times. Been out there many times and love seeing those bands. Grind has a newer bass player. Jeremy Harrington's now been in the band a little bit, and I think they've only done maybe one show with him since he's been in the band. I could be wrong on that, but I've not seen him with him, and I'm sure many of you haven't either. So get out there and check that out. Jeremy's been on this podcast before when he was in the band Wither, and of course the guys in Grind have been on here multiple times. Severmind, of course, has been on here multiple times as well. They're, they became they became our official one every one hundred one every one hundredth episode band. They were they were on pretty early, and we had them again on our hundredth episode, and then now they've been on episode two hundred and three hundred, and I'm sure you'll see them again in sixty seven or sixty six now episodes for episode four hundred. And of course, they've been on here a couple other times as well. Unwritten Rules has not been on here. Maybe it's due time. Greenhorn Saints, brand new band that features Dave Cantrell, who has been on this podcast a couple times, actually three times. And each time has been a little bit different, which is a great thing about Dave Cantrell. Throughout my entire life listening to rock music, You know, his music's been a part of it because as we talked about when we've had him on and other times, his band Bunnies of Doom with Stacey Lane of Severmind was one of those bands that Jason and I saw several times in the early 90s opening up for other bands or at, you know, shows in downtown Tulsa, that kind of thing. And they did a reunion, I believe it was in 2019 at the Shrine. We had him on, him and Stacy on, talking about that. Dave was also on here way back by himself, just talking about, you know, his history and music and all his different bands. And then we also had him on once with Brian Crane and Terry Waska talking about the old Capitol Underground documentary that they put out a couple years ago. It's freaking fantastic. Check that out if you have not. It is a documentary about the punk and metal scene in Tulsa from the late 70s to the early 90s. And even if you're not from this area at all, if you just like documentaries, music documentaries, you need to check this out. They submitted it to tons of um, film festivals and it's been, it's got awards, it's got acknowledged. So this isn't just me talking up something because it's from my area and it features people I know and like. I'm saying this because it's great. You can get on Amazon Prime. So check out Old Capital Underground. But all that just to say you need to get out to the Shrine 
to see these four bands. And, you know, if you do, of course, hit, hit me up and let me know what you think. And if you're not in this area, just check out those bands. Hit them up on Facebook. They should all be tagged here on my Facebook post. Or hit them up on any of the socials and check out their music. I believe you will like it. All right, I need to mention some sponsors before we get too far into this. Hella Hot Hot Sauce is a hot sauce company based out of the San Francisco Bay Area that makes small batch artisan hot sauces. They do a lot of collaborations with some metal artists. Florida Frank from Hate Breed has a sauce called Florida Frank's Florida Heat. Techno Destructo, one of the founding members of Gore, has a sauce called Garlic Death Grip. Ghoul has a sauce called Brain Jerk. They've also got sauces forthcoming from Zetro of Exodus and Death Angel. Looking forward to, to seeing what those guys put out because all these sauces are extremely hot, but they're all very flavorful. You can check out the entire selection at hellahothotsauce.com. Hit them up on their socials. Instagram and Facebook is both Hella Hot Hot Sauce. And if you're on the West Coast, there are a lot of stores out there, but you can also buy them directly off that website. So hit them up and tell them you heard about them here. We've also got Sunset Tattoo, tattoo shop based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the Midtown area. Jake has 25 plus years of experience. His tattoos are done good and proper. They're state licensed, and most importantly, they are mother approved. You can see photos of tons of the work from Sunset Tattoo on Instagram, at Sunset Tattoo Tulsa, and Facebook is also Sunset Tattoo Tulsa. Shoot them a message or give them a call to set up a time to talk about what work you want to have done. I've had a tattoo done by Jake. I'm extremely happy with it. I know several other people that have as well. So get on there and check out that work. You won't be disappointed in what you see. And Give Jake a call and let him know you heard about him here. Med Farm is a dispensary located in Broken Air, Oklahoma. Unfortunately, they're not one of the ones that the Blues Brothers visited. But you should visit them because... The great thing about MedFarm is 30% of their proceeds go to build no-kill animal shelters. That is a, not a promotion. That is an all-the-time thing. Since the day they open, nearly a third of what they sell goes to build no-kill animal shelters, which is a great cause, and not enough major towns have those plentiful. So get over there and support them for that reason. They have a drive through which makes it easy and convenient for them. You can call ahead and put in your order that way. Or you can hit them up, leafly.com, to see their entire selection. Their website is medfarmok.com, and they're always running specials on their socials. Medfarm is P-H-A-R-M on Facebook, and Medfarmok on Instagram. And if you tell them you heard about them on Thunder Underground or mention our name, Thunder Underground, they'll give you 10% off your first order, which is very cool. So hit up Medfarm and mention Thunder Underground. Finally, we've got DEB Concerts. The promoter that's based right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that's brought a lot of great shows to this area. Bands like Saxon, Last in Line, Junkyard, L.A. Guns, Winger, Warrant, Buck Cherry, Bisto Blanco, Striper, Sebastian Bach, Lita Ford. The list is very long. They've also brought in Arena Acts. They brought in Snoop Dogg and Nelly. They've got other shows coming to the BOK Center in the coming months that should be announced in the coming months, so follow them on Facebook and Twitter at DEB Concerts. Hit up their website, debconcerts.com, 
for all the ticket info and you don't miss any future announcements as well. And of course, we always talk about them because we go to most of the shows they put on. They also book one of the stages at Rocklahoma every year, and Doug Burgess has been on this show a few times. So, huge thank you to DUB Concerts. All right, Pantera time. So, like I said, this is not something that I... I didn't... What's the right word here? I didn't set up an outline for myself. I didn't write down anything to say. I'm just going to start rambling, which could turn into a great time or it could turn into a bad, boring-ass time. But let's hope that it's decent. We've got a million different things we could talk about, but I just thought I would talk about some live stuff and maybe the early days of you know, my personal trip down the Pantera world. I had seen the name, heard the name. I probably saw it in magazines or heard it, but I had not heard them because when their major label debut came out in 1990, of course, they weren't on mainstream radio at all. The only way anyone around here would know about it is if you were like deep into, you know, non-mainstream stuff or you had MTV. I didn't have MTV at that point. You know, we didn't, whenever I was that age, we didn't have cable at my house until, actually probably until I was about 18 and getting ready to go to college. I think my parents finally got cable, which, you know, I always thought was strange as much as my parents love movies. But, but with all that being said, I had, you know, friends that knew about him that had heard the songs like Cowboys from Hell, Cemetery Gates, Psycho Holiday, because they had videos for those songs that were on Headbangers Ball. And I remember Jason mentioning that you know, the Psycho Holiday video, and I, you know, to me, Pantera was just a name of a band that I read in a magazine, and then Vulgar Display of Power came out in 1992, I believe it was early, like maybe March, my friend Lonnie Walters lived down the street from me, and he, you know, of course, this was now almost 30 years ago. So I don't remember the exact conversation, but I just remember him saying, you know, hey, he had got the new Pantera CD. And he's like, you got to check this out. And so I just remember being in his room and him hitting play. So the first Pantera song that I really remember hearing was Mouth for War, since it was the opening track on Vulgar Display of Power. And just the way that thing hit, that riff, everything about it, the riff, the drums the cadence to Phil's vocals, everything about that song, just, I was instantly hooked. And then as soon as that ends, you know, there's like half a second and then that opening riff of a new level. And then just as the album goes on, I was an instant fan. I don't remember how long it was until I got the CD myself, but it wasn't long after that. And they... Well, not they. What was I going to say with that? Well, like, see, at that point in my life, I was, I'd already liked metal bands like Metallica, Anthrax, Megadeth, but I wasn't, like, diehard about it yet. I just, I liked them. I knew their stuff. You know, at that point, I think I had Attack of the Killer Bees and Persistence of Time, and, you know, I had the Black Album, of course, and A Justice for All. And maybe 
maybe rest in peace. I don't know if I even had that at that point yet. Because, you know, I mean, 92 was about whenever I was really getting into all that stuff. 91 to 92 was kind of shifting because I was, you know, heavily into the more mainstream rock and the glam stuff of the 80s and the, the hard rock of the 80s, like Guns N' Roses and Def Leppard, Molly Crew, Bon Jovi, Tesla, you know, Cinderella, Great White Poison, all that stuff. Once I heard Pantera, I, I, I still kind of think they're the band that really pushed me into becoming as huge a fan of heavy stuff as I was of the hard rock stuff. And then, you know, once that happened, I got more into Metallica, more into Anthrax and Megadeth. After that, into Iron Maiden. And then <clears throat> all the other bands around that time that came out after the Pantera thing kind of hit with you know, typo negative and white zombie and prong and crozing conformity. You know, you don't need me to list all these bands, but Testament, all that stuff. So for me, Pantera was kind of, they weren't, we use the term gateway band a lot. They weren't really the gateway band because I was already into metal bands, but they were kind of the gateway band to f maybe gateway is not the right word. Maybe, Falling off a cliff band. Maybe maybe they're the band that pushed me over the edge, I guess is the right way to say it. So later in 1992, December actually, I don't remember the exact date, but I feel like it was early December, you know, so probably like 5th, 8th, something like that. I should have looked up the exact date. Pantera played on the Tulsa Fairgrounds at a place called the Cabaret Theater, which does not exist anymore. It was an actual theater. It had, I mean, a theater in the sense of the stage was set up, was just like a stage theater. But it didn't have theater seating. Like, it wasn't like a sloped theater-style place. It just had like a, a you know, a, a level in front of the stage that was a little bit lower, and then like the back of it was raised. And they had... You know, they would have rows of chairs in that front level, and then the back level was raised a little bit, and that was like an open, you know, standing room only type thing. But when this show came up, the week of the show, I won, I was like the 10th caller on the local radio station. And it was for concert tickets. And it was one of those rare times where it wasn't like, hey, you win tickets to this. They said, hey, you get to choose. Do you want two tickets to see Melissa Etheridge? Or do you want two tickets to see Pantera? And no knock on Melissa Etheridge. I like her music. But just as it was, just as it would be now, it was when I was 15 and a half years old in late 1992. It was a no-brainer. I said Pantera. And then I asked Mike Thrasher if he wanted to go. We got those tickets and we went to the Cabaret Theater. First thing of note is White Zombie opened this show. And same thing that I could say about Pantera is that I don't think, I, I could be wrong, but I don't know that I had heard White Zombie at all before this show. I'm sure by that point... Since it was 92, I'm sure by that point, Thunder Kiss 65 or Black Sunshine was getting play on Headbangers Ball. But once again, 
I didn't have excuse me, Headbangers Ball. You know, with all that, you know, with all that being said, to backtrack a little bit, I would see Headbangers Ball on occasion when I'd go over to Jason's and hang out, or at Mike Thrasher's, a couple other friends, where you know they would either have it, have it taped on VHS or I, we would watch it live or whatever. So I'd see it on occasion, just not every time. So there's a lot of stuff that you know I didn't see until a couple years, you know, here till a year later or a couple years later, whenever you know, I caught wind of it or whenever Columbia house became a thing and it was easy to just like, Oh, I need to pick eight more CDs. I've heard of white zombie. You know, I've heard of fear factory. So I'm just randomly picking bands that, and that's the way you find out. About it. But the point is white zombie open and they weren't a household name yet in the metal world. Like I don't even believe that Beavis and Butthead had, you know, cause I think that Beavis and Bud kind of helped, you know, whenever they were talking about, Whichever video it was, whether it's Thunder Kiss or Black Sunshine. And <clears throat> so seeing White Zombie was really cool, but I don't remember much about, you know, I mean, this is like I said, 30 years ago. So I don't remember tons about the entire show, like in details, but I remember things like thinking this band's fucking crazy and I love it. And it sounds different because, you know, White Zombie at that point, and even now, there's not really, you know, White Zombie, you know, is in that groove metal category, but the guitar tone and everything is just as akin to stoner metal, just a little bit more sped up most of the time, especially if you dive into their stuff before Los Exorcisto. You know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, White Zombie had like four albums before that album and you know kind of just like Pantera you know they're another band that had several albums before their major label debut and just seeing them live in that that setting that small theater setting you know something that was was very cool and I'm gonna get to bring White Zombie back up here in a minute but when Pantera hit, you know, still to this day, this is one of those shows that I tell people about, not just because of the fact that I got to see Pantera on their Vulgar Display of Power tour. Because nowadays, if you talk to someone that isn't, I mean, you have to be at least, you know, let's just do the math real quick. Pantera's final shows were over 20 years ago now. So, I don't remember if the final show was in 2000 or 2001, but... So just to be someone that actually went and saw Pantera live and can remember it, you would have to be in your late 20s. You know, and even have a good recollection of it, I would say you would have to be in your early 30s, probably. So to tell people that you saw Pantera, you know, seven times or whatever, you know, sometimes it blows people blows people's minds, just like it blows my mind whenever someone tells me, you know, yeah, I saw Led Zeppelin four times or I saw, you know, Elvis a bunch of times, you know, like when my parents talk about, you know, seeing Elvis or someone says they saw Jimi Hendrix, that kind of thing, you know, that always, it's just hard to comprehend for me. So I guess that means we're getting old whenever those are the type of things for the bands that, you know, I grew up on, but I always talk about this show, not just for that fact, just to say I got to see him early on, but I still, to this day, I mean, I've seen other shows where, you know, stuff got a little crazy, but 
I don't think that the the cabaret theater and the Tulsa Fairgrounds realized what they were in for with the with what they booked, which is kind of odd too because I know they'd had other metal shows there, and I never that's the only show I ever saw there, and you didn't ever see a lot of shows advertised there or booked there. And I remember when we had Steve Ray on, he talked about. Man, I can't even remember now if he saw what show he talked about there, but I know when we had Andy Papadopoulos from Archon, he talked about seeing Anthrax there with, I think, Sacred Reich or Metal, maybe it was Metal Church opening up. Maybe Sacred Reich played there another time. Maybe that's what Steven mentioned. I don't know, but there's a few metal bands that played there in the late 80s, I believe, early 90s. But when Pantera played there, they had that front area, like I told you about, had chairs folding chairs lined up okay so you can see where this is going folding chairs lined up for a sit-down concert to see pantera and white zombie in 1992 okay you had to have i I don't believe they were reserved i think it was like one of those their chairs but it was a general mission set wherever you want thing but you had to have basically like a ticket that said, you know, you could be in the front section, the pit style section, that kind of thing. And I didn't have that ticket, so I was in the back section. And so once the show started, these chairs, people start trying to push them out of the way. When you think about that, there's tons of people all around, you know. You can't, like, do that when you got rows of chairs and they're filled up with people. Then they just kind of, every once in a while, a chair would go up in the air. And as you can imagine how that would work out, you know, half the time, it's not going to, it's not going to land in the right spot with all these people around. But I guess they knew, you know, maybe I, you know, see, like I said, I'm talking this through as I'm going, but maybe they didn't know what they were in for, but I don't know why they put the chairs there, but there was an ambulance out front before, when we got there, like not because they'd called it just on standby. And then I don't know how many, if the ambulance left or other ambulances, or their ambulances came or what, but I saw no less than, I remember counting when we were there. I saw no less than 14 people being taken out. Either, you know, a couple of them were actually carried out. I saw one on a stretcher, but most of them were being helped out and they had like, you know, blood running down their head or bloody face or. They just got hurt in the pit or something, or a chair like smacked them in the head. I don't know. But I've seen many shows where, you know, you would see here or there, you see someone get hurt and get helped out. I've seen some major accidents, some minor accidents, but this never at that level and that short of a time period have I seen that many people taken out for help. And I'm sure a lot of them were just taken out, you know, bandaged up and sent on their way. But there was a couple of those that looked like that I'm sure they were taken you know, to the, to the ER, to the urgent care, whatever. But that's one of the main points that always stuck out to me. And that kind of, like I said, after hearing the album at Lonnie's and then seeing this show live, which by the way, I know Lonnie was also at that show and seeing that everything like that happen. You know, I, I know a lot of, you know, people, I know a lot of friends, you know, a lot of friends of this podcast, like Jason Carroll and Kevin Graham, David Campbell, you know, have told me, talked about shows that they've seen, that they saw in the 80s, you know, whether it be in a club or a major, you know, like seeing Metallica in the clubs or seeing, 
you know, prong on their first tour. Just, you know, Kevin saw tons of stuff in California, like thrash bands, like, you know, in their infancy, like Slayer and Death Angel and Testament, Metallica and Megadeth and all that stuff. And like David Campbell, I know, saw the Metallica shows at the, or at least one of the Metallica shows at the Kane's Ballroom. And, you know, Jason Carroll's told me a lot about, you know, early shows that he saw at the Canes like that and some other club shows and, you know, when he was in the Navy and that kind of stuff, you, you know, so for me, you know, I was a little bit, a few years younger than these guys. And my first actual rock show wasn't until 1991. So when I saw this in 92, that was kind of my first experience of a show like that, you know, that all the guys talk about, you know, seeing these bands grinding out in the clubs in their early days. You know, I got to see that with Pantera and a couple other bands around that time. So I hold that up in regards, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't even remember a lot of like what they played because at that point, really all I knew was the songs from Vulgar Display of Power and a couple of the songs off Cowboys from Hell. Cause I don't even think I had Cowboys from Hell at that point yet. I got it like right after, um, but you know that the entire set was those two albums, I'm sure. And I'm, I mean, I've looked it up before as well. But to be able to see that, you know, I still hold that in high regard, obviously, as I've just said. So after the show, after Pantera was done, me and Mike were outside waiting. I believe we were waiting on his dad to pick us up because we were still, we didn't have a driver's license yet. You know, we are 15 and actually, late 92, Thrasher should have been 16 by then, so I don't know why, but I'm pretty positive we're waiting on someone to pick us up, but I could I could be mixing that up with another time. See, that's why I needed Thrasher here, you know, for, for this conversation. But we're waiting outside. You know, we went over to the side to where, like, you know, vans or buses were at that. I don't even think they were buses, but whatever they were traveling in to see if we could see the guys from Pantera. And this, again, this wasn't like, I wasn't super diehard yet. I was just like, you know, a 15 year old kid hoping I could meet the guys I just saw. And then Rob Zombie walks out, which again, you know, you say that now and it's like, holy shit. You know, back then it was like, well, that's cool. We just saw, you know, here's the singer from that band we just saw, but I had really known about White Zombie for a few hours at that point. Right. So, he comes over, he's talking to us and then it, you know, and then the rest of the band comes out and, you know, I've still got, you know, they had their, um, eight by 10, you know, press photos that I think it was Geffen that they were on that they gave him, you know, her lecture or whatever it was to hand out. And, you know, I've still got that, that's signed by, signed by them. And Ivan, Ivan DePrume, who was on this podcast, actually, I believe it was, it was early. 2020, because it was actually like the first episode we did once the pandemic kind of hit. But so that's a cool one. Side note to go check out because we've got a full audio interview with Ivan DePrume. And that episode also features a written interview with Sean Yassault, the bass player of White Zombie, that she actually sent in, you know, told us to send her some questions. And we read them off on that that episode as well. But both of them came out, and Jay Younger, the guitarist for White Zombie, came out, and we, you know, we met all the band members. I got that thing signed, and 
you know, so being a 15 year old kid, I actually thinking back about it, I've never really, I don't know if I've ever really thought about this, but I think that could be. So I'm trying to think before that, that might be the first like band that I'd met, you know, that was a touring act, you know, at a show I went to because this was December of 92. My first show was like September of 91. And so between then, you know, it was probably like five or six shows. You know, I know after that first Warrant show, I saw a Striper show, a Guns N' Roses show, Tesla show, a couple other shows in there as well. But so, you know, there's a side note, I believe White Zombie might be the first band I ever met at a show. And another side note is that I believe when Pantera played the Canes Barroom earlier that year, Back in that time period, before they kind of, right before they started to hit, they played Tulsa several times around that time period because, you know, they're from Dallas. So they're always playing Dallas area and they would hit up like a lot of bands do. Even, you know, because Pantera is one of those bands, you know, from everything I can remember, even before they were doing like, you know, they would do full scale tours even before they were like a nationally recognized band. They would tour the country and then they would just they would just grind it out all the time. And when they weren't doing like a full national tours, they would play all throughout Texas and the surrounding States. So Oklahoma got them a lot. And I've actually got bootleg videos of like a show in Oklahoma city from around like 91, 90, 91. And then, you know, they, they'd hit the area every tour. It seemed like just because this area loved them, just like most areas, but kind of because it was an extension of their home base. And so after, you know, that moment, this was 92, then the next time I saw him was after Far Beyond Driven came out. So by the time that came out in 94, between December of 92 and then whenever Far Beyond Driven came out, which I believe was spring of 94, they became one of the biggest metal bands in the world. You know, which seems weird to say because, you know, I don't know if they really were, but they had at least had that impression because they weren't, you know, especially at that time, you know, grunge had really had totally taken over mainstream and, you know, alternative as well. You know, that might have been a, a year or two later, but that, that time period, wasn't the perfect time period for a band, a really heavy band to like get mainstream, you know, huge. But the fact that Metallica and the Black Album became such this massive thing and Metallica was kind of like the banner band of heavy metal at that, by that point, you know, which they still are now that, you know, that never changed, but they, that became so big that that also had the effect where whenever Megadeth put out Countdown for Extinction, or excuse me, Countdown to Extinction, um, you know, until a little bit lesser degree when Anthrax put out Sound of White Noise with John Bush and then Testament the Ritual. And, you know, you know, these albums had mainstream success. But Pantera, I think, you know, was lucky that they were the band that was kind of making that rise at that moment. And they were the perfect band to do it because not only did they have top notch musicians, they had a great sound, 
They didn't sound like a carbon copy of the other bands that were on the radio and the other bands that were the heavy bands that were in the mainstream and on Headbangers Ball. And so they just kind of got into that right moment to where they, you know, exploded. And then when Walk hit, you know, on MTV and everything, and it just became the next level thing. So when Far Beyond Driven came out, it debuted at number one. And I can't remember the exact, I should have looked this up, but I used to know this. I don't know why I know it, but I think it was the first, I've heard him say it was the first heavy metal album to debut at number one, but I thought there's, there's, it was, it was the first something album because, you know, that was also been stated way back about Quiet Right when Metal Health came out in 83 or 84. I think it was 84. Um, that was like the first, maybe that was the first one to hit number one. And then I know Slave to the Grind from Skid Row came out in 91 and that was the first you know they claimed it was the first heavy metal quote unquote album to to in the sound scan era to be number, maybe be number 1 or I don't know why I'm pondering all this but the point is when Far Beyond Driven came out it debuted at number 1 on the Billboard charts in 1994 which which was you know, still kind of hard to, to believe when you think about 1994 and everything that was in the mainstream, which, you know, to me, all these years later is still wildly impressive. So with all that being said, they went from theaters and clubs and in 94, they were playing arenas. I mean, we're not, I mean, I don't know everywhere they played and how big they were, but they played at that point, the biggest arena in the Tulsa area um, housed around I think it's like ten to 12,000 when you include like people on the floor. You know, now, of course, we have a, a basketball arena that holds like 20,000. But at that point, Pantera played the pavilion in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they had Typo Negative opening. And at this point, I had just became a Typo Negative fan. And it's another thing that I had seen the video for Black Number 1 you know, read about them in the magazines because I was, you know, like a lot of rock and metal fans around that time. I was a magazine junkie with Hit Parader and Rip and Metal Edge and all that crap. All the stuff that was way more entertaining than Rolling Stone and all that BS. And and I still remember that I got Bloody Kisses from Typo Negative, which was their third album, off of Columbia House. Okay. It was one of my many CDs that I got for a penny. And then, of course, all the other ones that I got ripped off on. And then, of course, got many more for another penny when I used my dad's name or a friend's name. You know, all that stuff that we all did. We should do a full episode sometime on just Columbia House shit, you know. Because I was actually going through some stuff this past year. Like, I went through tons of boxes and old stuff. Tossing stuff out and reorganizing some stuff. And I actually found some old Columbia House ads. You know, which is... That's just something, you know, when you think back about, you know, how cool that was and that experience. That, you know, I wish that the youth today, that, you know, whenever they're getting into music, could do something, you know, could have that. Because now it's just like... You know, there's no need to get into this because everybody says it. But it's like, you know, with the way technology is and the way everything's like, ah... 
you hear half a song and you're like, I don't care. And you never check it out. When back then it's like, you, you know, one song. So you're like, I'm going to invest in this entire album, which, you know, wasn't much when you're getting 13 albums for like eight bucks when you include shipping. But still, you know, when you're a kid or a teenager, you know, that's a huge thing. You get this box in the mail with 12, 13 CDs, you know, so you're like, you know, spending the next week or two, like enveloping this stuff, you know, kids don't have that experience now, but there's tons of stuff like that with them, you know, with music when it comes to concerts and like the old days of waiting in line to get tickets and all that stuff. But all that, you know, doesn't matter to be said, you know, one of my favorite bands of all time is obviously Pantera, but is also typo negative to see the two bands together was phenomenal. Typo Negative is another band that I got to see several more times after that. Always excellent. And, you know, the two bands together, it's kind of like Pantera and White Zombie. They did those shows that I mentioned early on, and again, they toured again in, I believe it was on the Far Beyond Driven Tour, like the next year, like maybe it was 95. But they toured again after White Zombie was, you know, bigger and established in a household name, just like Pantera. And then Pantera toured with Type of Negative again. And, you know, so those bands are kind of intertwined. And I, you know, personally, I've about, I don't know how long ago now, probably four years ago now, ended up getting a tattoo on my arm that has the Pantera logo and the Type of Negative logo. Since they're both circular, I put them together just to make it a little bit more unique than the standard two tattoos separate. So, that's where I stand on those two bands and to be able to see them live together. Very, very cool. And, you know, to be able to see, see a band, you know, cause that's kind of like what I talked about earlier, getting to see the bands in the clubs, like, you know, those guys I mentioned or anybody else listening, they got to see say Metallica in a club. And then a few years later, you're seeing them in an arena. You know, I kind of got to experience that with Pantera. You know, I got to be there when they were still a band playing a tiny hole in the wall you know, on the local, at the local fairgrounds to being able to play arenas and being one of the biggest metal bands on the planet. And then, let me think, then I, I need to go in order here. Okay. So here's the next show that I wanted, I really wanted Thrasher here to talk about this, but if I had waited for him, you know, we would have been not putting this out for another three weeks or so because by the time he gets back from out of town, I'm going to be out of town for a couple weeks. So anyway, here I am. So 1995, December 31st, 1995, New Year's Eve going into 1996, Pantera played the New Year's Eve show at the Tarrant County Convention Center in Fort Worth, Texas. That's the only show I've ever seen at that venue, which I believe still exists. I think I saw, I read something about it a while back, I think, but anyway, so me and Mike went to Dallas and I still remember we were going to drive. This was the, this was the first, uh, out of state show that I'd went to. And I think it's probably the first that Mike had went to, unless I'm forgetting something, but you know, at that point we had been to shows in Tulsa and Oklahoma city. So we go to the show in Dallas and we were going to drive, but 
you know, we were still late 95, we were 18. We ended up getting plane tickets and decided to fly from Tulsa to Dallas, which if you're not from this area, that's a short ass flight. It's literally, it's listed as an hour still, you know, cause I just made that connecting flight recently, but it literally takes about 40, 45 minutes. And I remember we, the reason we flew is because there was, I don't remember if it was Southwest or whatever airline, it was like dirt cheap. We got round trip, a round trip ticket for like, again, I don't remember the exact price, but it was cheap enough that an 18 year old could easily afford it. So I'm thinking it was like, it was, I know it was well under a hundred bucks. We're talking like 60, 80 bucks or something. So we bought these round trip tickets. We flew down there. His brother, Kevin picked us up. And we stayed at his place. And I remember before the show, probably the day before the show, we drove over to the Dallas Cowboys Stadium, which at that point was still in Irving, the old stadium before they built the mega AT&T, AT&T Stadium, Jerry, Jerry World in Arlington. You know, about a decade ago, we went over there and we were just going to like, I don't remember why we went over there. If Mike wanted to take a picture of him peeing on the side or something, you know, I've never been a Cowboys hater like a lot of people around here because my dad has been a diehard fan of the Cowboys since he was a kid, since they debuted in 1960. Uh, But Mike has not been a fan and you know he's one of those people that has a very uh good reason for not being a fan he's not a giants redskins or eagles fan like a lot of the people that hate the cowboys but he is a buffalo bills fan so anyone that is a nfl fan will remember that the last time the cowboys went to the super bowl in the mid 90s they they won 3 super bowls in the span of 4 years and two of those three Super Bowls were back-to-back wins over the Buffalo Bills. So, But anyway, me and Mike went to the stadium, and they actually had the entrance, like the drive, the entrance that, you know, you would drive down into to get to the field was open. And it, it was open up to the field area. Then they had, like, a gate across there, but we could, like, go down in there and look at the field, which... At that point, when you're 18, it was pretty impressive, you know, because I'd been to football games, but not an NFL game, you know, at that level, like being on the field level. So there's a totally random side note. I don't even know why I went in that much detail about that, but that's what I do here. Especially when Jason was around, we would get way too tangenty. Is that a word? Tangent? Anyway, back to the subject at hand. Tarrant County Convention Center, December 31st. Pantera, New Year's Eve. Still one of those amazing moments I love to tell people about as well. In fact, not every year, but most years on December 31st, I post a photo of a flyer that I got from the show, which I'll talk about in a second. But the show also featured Crowbar and Corrosion of Conformity opening up. So you basically had, you not basically, you had, No. Okay. You almost had the entire band of down on this lineup. 
Jimmy Bauer was the only one that was missing. Drummer for Down. He, of course, is in I Hate God as well. Well, Jimmy, of course, was not on the lineup because I Hate God was not on the lineup, but Down featured at that point. Rex Brown was still in the band. Phil, of course, Pepper Keenan, and Kirk Winstein. So, this was the first time I saw Crowbar. I think that's that point is the second time I saw COC. But this lineup, to me, still this day, is one of those greatest triple bills I've ever seen. You know, I say that a lot about time, you know, that time period. You know, also the typo, the Motley Crue typo negative King's X lineup. I could go on about that, like several others, but those three bands together was pretty magical, especially on a New Year's Eve night in Pantera's hometown. Crowbar was a band that I knew about, but I wasn't really into at that point yet. And even after seeing the show, I liked them, but I didn't really get into them till later. And then, but COC, I was heavily into one of my favorite bands at that time. You know, still to this day, I feel the same way. And then Pantera, of course, and another arena show from Pantera, and they just went out there and knocked it out of the park, just like they were in a club. Just like I'm pretty sure they probably did every night, every time I saw them in any video I saw. And during this show, I remember when it got to midnight for the countdown, they stopped, did the countdown. And then they did a shot, a toast, with some black tooth grins there on stage. And then after, you know, midnight, like they, they it timed out to where, I don't remember what time they started. It was probably 11 or something, because after midnight, I know they still played like another hour or something. And, you know, it was fantastic. Towards the end of the show, they had... Flyers, which were basically just copies of, you know, eight and a half by 11 sheets that they had dropped from the rafters. I think they had just, I think they just had some guys up there, like in the, whatever that's called, not the catwalk, the, I should know that term. I used to work in theater, but anyway, they were dropping them, you know, so just tons of these things were coming down and I got a few of them and it was basically an ad for the Great Southern Trinkill, but it had a picture of Pantera and it said Happy New Year from Pantera and it said coming in 1996, the heaviest album of the year, something like that. So, but a side note from this show is that between COC and Pantera, the Tarrant County Convention Center was set up same way, like I mentioned about the show earlier, like a lot of shows are still to this day, you know, had the arena floor. No chairs, it was a wide open floor. But you had to have a floor ticket to get down on that general mission floor. If not, you're in the stands, and the stands were also general mission. So, we're pretty low down in the stands, like first, second row, me and Mike. But we're towards, like, the, not the very, you know, far back, but kind of like getting close to where it curves to go around towards the back. And 
whenever or before Pantera started, there was like a clump of people all around us. And we'd kind of went that far back just so we could get down to that first row rather than be like several rows back on the side. But anyway, people started talking and I remember some guy saying, hey, if we all, if we all jump over at the same time, they can't stop us. You know, that whole herd mentality thing. (laughs) And there were, because there was security down there, just basically monitoring the area, checking tickets and, you know, making sure people weren't jumping over this, you know, the, you know, the edge of the wall there to get down there. But there was like, you know, maybe four or five of these guys over there and there was a ton of us and he, sorry about that annoying ass train, but if you can hear it, I don't know. It seems like it's getting louder, but. Anyway, so everybody became in agreement with that guy. And then so as soon as like the lights went out and Pantera started, everybody jumped over. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody in our little clump of people there. I don't really remember how many of us it was. I would say 20, 20, 30 people maybe. We all jump over and then just start running, you know, towards the crowd of people. And the guy's concept idea as you would think worked out for most people as we're running i don't know if those guys caught a couple people as i ran by or what but what i do know is that as we're running mike thrasher slipped fell right there on the ground so he was an easy target while the rest of us got up to the crowd and disappeared into the crowd Mike got grabbed by one of the security guys and escorted right out the building. New Year's Eve, 1995, and Mike's standing outside the Tarrant County Convention Center while the rest of us are inside enjoying the almighty Pantera in the final moments of that year of our lives. Trying to make this dramatic. That's why I want him here, you know, for his, like, because I know, like, the basics of this, and we've talked about it many times, but I can't remember if he went back up to, like, you know, they just threw him out the door and said, you know, you're out of here. It's not like they took his picture and said, don't come back in. They don't know shit, you know, so they just pushed him out the door. So, anyway, he walked back around, and I can't remember if he went to, like, the ticket booth if it wasn't sold out, because I don't think it was sold out at all, because I remember there being open seating on the up in those stands but anyway i can't remember if he went to the ticket booth or if he found someone that was out there but i figured by that point you know this show had been going on a couple hours at least and we're talking 11 o'clock or something so i doubt there were people out there trying to sell tickets but the point is mike bought another ticket and came back in so he basically paid twice as much to see this show which he said recently you know was the best double purchase ticket he's ever made. So I know that, and even knowing that, whatever he paid twice for is probably still cheaper than whatever show you're going to coming up. That's my guess. I just saw the Blues Brothers, and I bet what I paid to see that show was probably more than what Mike paid twice to see Pantera, Corrosion Conforming, and Crowbar on New Year's Eve. So... Anyway, that was another fantastic moment in my life of seeing Pantera. I also saw him at the Brady Theater in Tulsa, Oklahoma the next year. It was 
actually that was 96. It wasn't even a year later because it was, it was almost a year later. I feel like it was December as well. And it was part of the Great Southern Trend Kill Tour. And this one, they had Neurosis opening for them. And they also had, man, hell, I want to think it was Crowbar again. I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on that. I need to ask Jason. He would know that for sure. I remember seeing Neurosis and thinking, what the hell is this? <laughs> because I still wasn't really into like extreme stuff at that point. You know, me, you know, now I'm still just kind of like, I'm indifferent to a lot of it and there's some of it I like, but I was just really like, what the hell? And, you know, but now I hear Neurosis and I can, you know, I dig them, you know, and they were a band that was kind of ahead of their time, I think you know, with a lot of the stuff they're doing imagery wise and they, you know, they had, you know, the multiple drummers and all that kind of stuff going on. And this show was actually, <clears throat> like I said, it was at the Bray Theater in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I was going to school at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. And I don't remember what night of the week it was, but it was a weeknight. I'd say it was Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. And then Either the night before, I can't remember the word, either the night before the night after, the Black Crows played the Brady Theater as well. And I had classes, of course, both days. And the next day after that as well. But I was a huge Black Crows fan at that, at that point as well. So I drove from Norman to the Brady Theater in Tulsa, which is about, I'd say, two... Two to two and a half, a little over two hours. So I drove there to see the Black Crows, drove back to Norman, went to school the next day, drove back to see Pantera, drove back to Norman, go back to school the next day. But I remember when I came back that second night, you know, because I didn't get a lot of sleep the night before and that classes and then doing that and, you know, you're just worn out from the driving, from the rock concerts, from school, all that stuff. I remember I made it, I'd say halfway back, I think, on the turnpike between Tulsa and Oklahoma City, there's a, you know, like a McDonald's and a gas station, and I pulled over there, and I literally just pulled over and just slept in my vehicle for like an hour or two, and then started driving, and then I was just so tired that I remember stopping again at some gas station once I got to Oklahoma City, when I was like less than an hour you know, like 45 minutes away and then slept again. And then I was so tired that I got to Norman when I'm like 10 minutes from my, you know, place and did the same thing again, pulled over and just like slept. You know, I know this is completely useless info, but I'm just trying to add, you know, what's the right word? Fluff to this bullshit, I guess. I don't know. But the point is Pantera at the Brady Theater, another excellent show. You know, we got all the the Great Southern Trend Kill stuff, they played Suicide Note 1 and Suicide Note 2, which is just, still just like, I just, can't really put that into words, I just absolutely love that. Everything about that, that album and that, that run of three albums, you know, is just as impressive to me as any run of three albums of any metal band ever, or I say three albums, four albums. I mean, even, you know, you could throw in reinvent, reinventing the steel and say five albums, but I'm talking, you know, the Cowboys, Vulgar, Far Beyond Driven, those three albums. It's an amazing, 
collection of three albums in a row, and then you throw in the Great Southern Trend Kill. They kind of had a radio hit with their cover of Planet Caravan, which I did not like at all, admittedly. Well, I say that. I didn't dislike it. I just found it wildly boring because I found the original wildly boring. And I'm not one of these like, oh, it's got to be metal, guys. You know, I love a lot of, you know, I've always been a guy that leaned more towards hard rock most of the time than I did metal. And then, you know, I like a lot of suspect stuff that, you know, a lot of people think is crazy when it comes to like some pop stuff. I'm into all kinds of stuff. So I'm just saying it's not, that's not the reason. I just always found it boring. And then they played that live. And I just remember standing there. Actually, I was standing there in the pit area at the Brady. And I just sat down on the floor because a couple other people did too. I'm like, well, you know, this is a good break. I don't know why I have that memory, but seeing the rest of the show, seeing Pantera, that was kind of like, in a way, that was probably the peak, the the 96 to 97 era of Pantera, you know, because, I mean, reinventing the steel is great, and they did, you know, a couple more big tours. They toured with Anthrax after that on the reinventing the steel tour, did like that outdoor shed tour with them, and all that stuff that, you know, was still huge. But by that point, I know that they were kind of like unraveling. And a lot of people think they were going through the motions and that kind of thing. Phil, especially. But the, that Great Southern Trend Kill area was kind of like the height of them as far as as a band collective while they were still together, I think. And I saw them again the following year in 97, the next summer. So that was another, not even a year after that. So that's probably three times in the span of like 18 months, but they played Dallas on Ozfest. They weren't the headliner, but they were, I believe, the second band down below Ozzy. I think. Yeah, because that was 97, which was... I need to, like, remember this, right? That's like the, the year that had, like, that was like that excellent lineup of, like, Typo Negative, Machine Head... Paraman 5000, um, Ozzy, Pantera. I think some of the, some of the dates had Tool on it as well, but not the one we saw. But Pantera, another thing of note, I know I went to that with Thrasher and Jason, and that might be the one that Dan, our friend Dan, went with us as well, or that could have been the next Ozfest. But anyway, that was at, I can't even remember what it's called now. At that point, it was called the Starplex, but it's an amphitheater in Dallas. It's still there near the fairgrounds in Dallas. It's changed names like 20 times because it keeps getting a new rebranded by a new sponsor, like Smirnoff. It used to be called that. It's called, you know, Genexa, I think, was the most recent one. Maybe it's still called that. Regardless, Pantera... Same kind of concept with what I talked about at the New Year's Eve show with everybody jumping over. But this one wasn't something I was a part of, but I was like, you know, that amphitheater, like most amphitheaters has like the 100 level. And then, then you got your break in the middle, then your 200 level of seats, then your break, and then your whole lawn section. So anyway, between, we were on the 200 level. So in, excuse me, in between... The 200 and the 100 is those, you know, like a gap where like, you know, a walkway basically. And then as soon as Pantera hit, 
at this Ozfest. It didn't happen with the other bands, but as soon as they hit, people just started piling over. People were running down the stairs and people were jumping over those that and going down to the 100 section and like security couldn't stop them. Like, I don't remember how much, but it just, you know, I could be like over, like as the years went on, like built this set more in my head, but I know it was a decent amount of people. And I know that they, you know, they got down in that 100 section and this is like kind of like the thing that Pantera, you know, did. They set that, you know, that frenzy off in people, you know, in that live setting. And, and you, you couple that with the fact that they're in their hometown where whether these people had been with them the whole time or whether they were, you know, younger and newer fans, but just excited that, you know, you know, this huge bands from our town and, you know, they're playing this, this big show at the pavilion with, you know, Ozzy and all these other great bands. So, you know, that's the one thing that always stood out to me about that show. And I know around that times when they started playing, you know, it was probably a little bit before that, but they would play Cat Scratch Fever and in the middle of Cowboys from Hell, which I always thought was cool. Cause when you think about those two songs, they don't seem to fit at all, but just in the middle of it, Dimebag would break into the riff. And sometimes it was only the riff, but I know a couple times I saw them, you know, they went into the vocals and everything and they actually ended up, I don't know if it was around that time or when it was, but they recorded, there's a studio version of that that was on, I think it was on a soundtrack. Anyway, totally random side note. But another thing of note is I saw... Me and Jason went to Dallas in either 98 or 99. I think it was 98. To see Anthrax when they were on their... It was either Stomp 442 or Volume 8 tour. I think it was probably Volume 8 because Stomp 442 was a couple years before that. So it would have had to have been Volume 8, right? So... Anyway, they, they played Trees in Dallas, and at the towards the end of the show, they said we're going to bring up a couple friends of ours, and they brought out Dimebag and Vinny. So we got to see Dimebag and Vinny. They played Cold Gin by Kiss, and I'm they played a second song as well, and I can't remember if that was an Anthrax song or what it was. But that was very cool to see, kind of one of those experiences that not a lot of people probably got to see. And then, you know, of course now with both of them being gone, you know, that much of a bigger deal, you know, Dimebag did a, you know, just literally just today, I saw a headline from Blabbermouth. I didn't read the story yet, but I guess Frank Bellow recently did an interview and he said, Dimebag's always been the sixth member of Anthrax, which if someone is just like, wasn't around during that period or didn't pay a lot of attention to Anthrax, they might think, you know, why is he saying that? But those last couple of albums that Anthrax did with John Bush, Dimebag played a lot of solos because they didn't have a a permanent guitarist. They had Paul Crook in the band. And, you know, I know he played on, I think he played on both those albums, actually. But Dimebag came in and did a couple solos on those, on both albums. And, you know, so did a lot of work with Anthrax. And, of course, you know, the bands toured together a lot. And another random note is a few years later, after Damage Plan was out, I believe it was 2004, well, 2004 was the year that Dimebag died in December, 
And this was March. So it was either March of 2004 or 2003. I was at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Went down there with some friends. We did that several times. I believe I, I know, you know, Jason and, you know, our buddy Josh Baker did it several times. You know, I know they did it once or twice, I think, whenever I didn't go. But I, I know I went three times. I know that Josh was always there all those times. And I feel like, you know, a few other friends were, you know, at all of them, like Eric Reese. And then Jason was at a couple of those with me. And then, you know, Tommy was at a couple and Corey Roth. Anyway, all that being said, Jason was not at this one, unfortunately for him, but me and Josh, and I believe Corey Roth was with us, we were walking down 6th Street, and we're just walking by the bar, you know, by these bars, and I just happened to look down this, you know, down the cross street as we're walking by, and there's a, like a balcony, or like a patio area from this bar, and just as I'm walking by, I'm like, man, that looks like Dimebag and Vinny. But, like, why would that be them? And we just keep walking. And I'm like, no, it can't be a guy that looks like both those. Maybe one. So I turn around and go back and look back. And I'm like, yep, that's Dimebag and Vinny. So I, you know, told Josh and whoever. And we walked over there. And it was actually at the Coyote Ugly Bar, which is, you know, kind of funny to think about. But they are just out on the patio. And they weren't even playing South by Southwest. That's kind of why it took me by surprise. But since they're from you know, Dallas, I assume they, you know, cause I don't even think they were playing elsewhere in Austin, but the reason they were there on that patio was because the local rock radio station was out there and they were like, I guess, interviewing them and stuff. So I don't know if they came in specifically for that or if they probably came down there to, you know, play with someone else. Cause at South by Southwest, you'll see a lot of collaborations and you never hear about them until it's too late. For instance, one time Tom Morello played a show at South by Southwest that we got to see that included guest appearances from Slash, Nudo Betancourt, Perry Farrell, Les Claypool, and Wayne Kramer of MC5, which is just baffling to me to say all those names at once and to say I saw them all in a small club. You know, me and Josh were in there on that one, and Tommy as well, because Tommy's the one that texted me and told me to make sure I was there, so... Huge thank you to him for that. But going back to the, the Cowdy Ugly thing, I know, I guess it was after, you know, we did it. We got the pictures. And, you know, here's the, the funny, and not really funny, the shitty part of all of it is this was before, this wasn't before digital cameras, but it was before digital cameras were very, like, commonplace. Like, I had one at that point, but I just had, like, a little handheld one that, Literally, you know, those early digital cameras were like four megapixel quality pictures. So I'm kind of glad it wasn't on that because it would be all fucking shitty looking. But I had a, you know, I had my camera with me, which was a film camera. And, <clears throat> you know, I got my picture with, with Dimebag and Pat Lackman, who was the singer for Damage Plan. And I just happened to know like how many pictures I had taken, you know, on the, on the counter, like say it was 20 and some, I just had some guy standing there, take it for me. 
And then after the fact, I looked at my camera and it was still the same number that it was. I'm like, this son of a bitch did not take the picture. And I'm like, this was dime bag. You know, it's like, I'm not going to like not get this picture. <laughs> so I waited a minute. I got Josh and handed him the camera and said, take this picture. And I went back up to get the picture. You know, they're hanging out dime bag. Literally said, didn't you just like get one a minute ago? You want another one? I'm like, and I told him, I'm like, dude, whoever took my picture didn't actually take the picture. And he's like, well, that's fucked up. So let's do this. And he turns around and we're getting ready to take the picture. And Pat turns around. He's standing there to take the picture. And, and Dimebag was like, no, that's not how you did the first picture. <laughs> Which I just thought was, it's still kind of funny that he remembered. I mean, it had been a few minutes and he'd taken a few of the pictures. But when we took the picture, Pat Lackman had put his arm around my throat like he was choking me. To where you could see the tattoo on his forearm that said damage. So Dimebag stopped and told him to get his arm back around me like it was before and we took the picture. So I still think that's cool as shit. You know, it's a cool memory to have. I'm glad I have that picture. But the shitty part of all of it is that I also took a picture of Josh with Dimebag and then with Vinnie Paul. I took a picture of Vinny and I took a picture of Josh with Vinny. I have the picture of me with Dimebag, but those other three pictures, I don't know where the fuck they are. <laughs> I can't. Maybe one day when I'm like 65, I will be digging through my shit and come across these negatives. Because I know that I've got to have those negatives because I was a dork and I kept all that stuff. And I've looked through it before. I've got a tub full of old pictures and I just need to do it again. But I know I've got negatives somewhere of that moment. But that was literally the month, not the month, the year. It was either the year Dimebag got killed or the year before. I never saw Damage playing. We were actually, went to a show. I went with Jason and it was in downtown Oklahoma City at, in Bricktown area at the old Bricktown Event Center. It was Dimebag, Dimebag, it was Damage playing with Hatebreed and Someone else open it up. And this is what baffles me for the most part. Like we got there and it was like, it wasn't a, you know, it was announced like, you know, this was like pre social media. So there's stuff on the internet, but it wasn't like plentiful and in your face like it is now. But we got there and there were signs everywhere that said, unfortunately, damage plan will not be here tonight because they had a family emergency. We, you know, we found out later that someone in Dimebag and Vinny's family had passed away. So obviously understandable that they didn't make it. They went, you know, to deal with that. But Hatebreed still performed and whoever else was on the bill. I almost think it was Shadow's Fall, which it couldn't have been because I don't, this is what baffles me still. I was like so butthurt by the fact that Damage Plan wasn't there that I'm like, fuck this, I'm going home. And I literally sold my ticket to someone standing in line to get a ticket, you know. And Jason went ahead and went and said it was awesome. And I liked Hate Breed at that point. Probably not as much as I love him now, like ever for the last 10, 15 years where I got even more heavy into him. But I still am baffled by the fact that I didn't just stay to see that because I love Hate Breed. And especially if Shadow's Fall was on the bill, that would make it even weirder that I didn't stay. So, regardless, I never got to see Damage Plan or Rebel. 
meets Rebel. I saw David Allen Coe several times, and one of the times he played Nothing to Lose by Rebel meets Rebel, but it obviously was not as cool as if Dimebag, Vinny, and Rex were playing it with him. I saw Hell Yeah a bunch of times with Vinny, and then in 2018, whenever Vinny Paul passed away, they did a public memorial in Dallas, Texas. It was June, I believe that was like the very end of June, like in the very beginning, very end of June or the beginning of July. And they did this at the bomb factory in Dallas, Texas. And it was the public, the public memorial. They also did a private one, but the public one was hosted by Jose Mangan of Sirius XM. And they had several guys there in person talking. But since it was obviously a short notice thing, they had a lot of people, excuse me, a lot of people on video that sent in videos or audio of them talking. And they would play it up there between songs. And they were showing videos of Vinny with Hell Yeah, Pantera, all kinds of stuff. It was a well done event. And we drove down there. I went with Kevin Graham, uh, Chris Taylor from Dark Side, um, Shannon Palmer. And, you know, we went down there and checked this thing out. And it was just a cool experience to be able to go to and be able to, you know, celebrate, you know, musician that we all, that we all love. So it was a shame that, you know, that we lost Vinny as well. But I'm glad I got to see that. And I got to sign the they had a guest book set up there, you know, just kind of like when you go to a a funeral for you to sign. And I thought it was cool that we got in there and were able to sign it on the first, you know, the first page that opens up. So that was kind of cool to me. And then also that featured a, a, a video clip from Phil talking. It wasn't very long, but it made a lot of news around that time because... You know, they hadn't really, you know, they had both made comments publicly about, you know, and Phil, you know, you know, to his credit, had made a lot more peaceful comments in the recent years before that about wanting to reconnect with Vinny and Vinny was still against it, which is, you know, fine. That's his, his choice. But, you know, I, you know, I was glad that Phil did that and that they included it and that made a lot of news around that time. And of course, since then, you know, he's talked a lot about it. And... Anyway, I don't know how to wrap this up, but, you know, there's just some random recollections of some live stuff I saw, some events, some memorable stuff. I also met, you know, speaking of that, like I said, I met Dimebag and Vinny, but I also met everybody. I met all four members of Pantera. I met the other two at different times, and they're always in random spots because I met Phil with Jason and I were together. Um, well, we met him again since the podcast, but that's another story. But in 1990, I believe it was 97, that OzFest that I mentioned. Yeah, that OzFest I mentioned earlier in 97 in Dallas. The day before, you know, like a lot of those big tours, especially those traveling tours that, there used to be a lot more of when it came to, you know, festivals nowadays are like destination events. Whereas throughout the, the nineties, there was tons of traveling festivals and Ozfest being one of them. 
a lot of the bands that weren't the headliner bands would do sideshows. Um, or I mean, whatever you call them, sideshows, off dates. From the show, you know, whenever the festival had an off date, they would just play in nearby town. And the Kane's Barroom had Machine Head headlining. And that also featured Neurosis. And maybe Cold Chamber? See, I can't remember. But the point is, Machine Head was there, Neurosis, and Phil was there. He just happened to come along to check out the show, which I thought was crazy. Because he's seeing these bands every night. But I thought that was cool as hell. Someone just mentioned it to us that we ran into that we knew. And just said, hey, Phil's here. And I saw him. And we thought, you know, that's bullshit. Why would Phil, the lead singer of one of the biggest metal bands in the world, be in a club in Tulsa on an off date from a festival tour? Sure enough, we're walking around. And just down back by the sound state or back by the sound booth. Phil's just standing right there wearing an I Hate God t-shirt. So me and Jason walk up to him, get our picture with him. It's still funny because we both look like, you know, it's Christmas morning. Got these goofy smiles on our face, you know, with Phil. So, And then whenever Pantera played, I believe it was the Pavilion show I talked about in 94 on Far Beyond Driven. No, or maybe it was... Yeah, it had to have been that one because it wasn't the the one in 96 because I came from Norman. But anyway, I was at the uh, I was at the mall in Tulsa at the food court. And I don't remember if I was with Mike Thrasher or my ex-wife or my girlfriend at that time. But anyway, Rex was in the food court with a woman. I don't know if it was a random woman or his girlfriend or what, but anyway... <clears throat> that was pre, you know, that was, like I said, 94, so that was pre-cell phones, so I wasn't able to get a picture, but I just walked up and said hi, shook his hand, and that was the extent of it. So, you know, as a fanboy, as a dork, I got the chance to meet all of them, and then when me and Jason had Jimmy Bauer from I Hate God and Down and Superjoint on the show, on the podcast here a few years ago, when Superjoint played Oklahoma City, we did the interview on Superjoint's tour bus. So as we're sitting there interviewing Jimmy Bauer, Phil walks out from the back to get some coffee and then make a couple comments about a guy outside and stuff and then goes back on his merry way. So there's our other experience with Phil. Anyway, Pantera. You know, I know there's a lot... A lot of people, I see more people nowadays like trying to rip on them, which I get because it's like, I mean, I don't get it, but it's like, I get it. Cause in a sense, like if you're like, if you don't really look too deep into stuff or know about the history, but it's like if, if Pantera debuted like right now and say they sounded like they did on vulgar display of power and there wasn't someone else that had sounded like that, would they get would they get big? Probably. But would they get as big? Probably not. You know, because it would just sound like another band. But when they came out, they, there wasn't anything else in the mainstream that sounded like that. And, you know, that, that helped them greatly. They did a great job at like marketing themselves as like, 
the band that was serious about metal, but also partying. So it's kind of like you're mixing. I mean, you know, bands like Metallica were, you know, had that party vibe too, but not in the same sense that Pantera did. It was like Pantera was like if you took the partying, you know, backstage vibe that, you know, everybody knew about from bands like Motley Crue or those bands of the 80s or like Ozzy or Poison or Guns N' Roses, whoever, and then put it on a band like Slayer or Metallica or Megadeth or something. So they kind of brought those two worlds together, I think. And then, you know, they released all those videos throughout the 90s, which is another thing that me and Thrasher and Jason would hang out and watch those things over and over. So if you've never seen the the Pantera home videos from the from the 90s, that's definitely something you should check out. There's there's three of them. Anyway, I know there's a million other things I could talk about, but I've been rambling long enough. And if you've listened this long, I appreciate it. If you got your own Pantera live stories or just Pantera stories meeting them or just, hey, what's your favorite song? My favorite Pantera song is Regular People Conceit. My favorite album is Vulgar Display of Power. But I love all five of those albums, you know, and I even like the ones beforehand, you know, the power metal, all that stuff. Hit me up on social media, on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Tell me what you think. Email me, leetheunderunderground at gmail.com. Give me your Pantera thoughts, your Pantera stories. Wherever you're listening to this, hit subscribe or like so you don't miss any future episodes. Like I mentioned earlier, we did a tribute to Vinny and then also had our every Pantera Every Album in a Row discussion that came out a couple, uh, three years ago now, and that was episode 177, so check that out. We've also talked about Pantera many, many, many times throughout the years, as I'm sure I will many, many more times in the years to come, whether it be on this podcast or just with other dorks like myself. All right, so I don't, you know, if this is your first time listening or you haven't listened much, check out some past episodes. I've never had on a member of Pantera, but I mentioned White Zombie earlier. I've had on two of those members. I mentioned Typo Negative. We've had on Kenny Hickey, which was fantastic. I mentioned Crowbar and Down. Jimmy Bauer from Down and I Hate God and Super Joint's been on here. Kirk Winstein of Crowbar and Down has been on here a couple times. I've also had on Steven Taylor, who is in Superjoint, and Phil's solo band, The Illegals. And he's also part of, you know, Phil's a vulgar display of Pantera shows. I've had on guys from Tommy Victor from Prong, Reed Mullen from Corrosion Conformity, Mike Dean from Corrosion Conformity, guys from Megadeth, Seven Dust, Guns N' Roses, Def Leppard, Twisted Sister, Molly Crew. Warrant, Tesla, Great White, Kill Switch Engage, Testament, Death Angel, Battlecross, Sons of Texas, Helmet, Buck Cherry. The list is very, very long. Dig through it all. Check it out. TheThunderUnderground.com. You can listen right there. You can also subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave us comments. Hit like, share it. All that stuff's free and it helps out big time. You can also buy merch. See all our other stuff on our website. Follow us and subscribe on YouTube. We haven't had a new video in quite a while, but we got a lot of content on there. It's separate from the podcast, so check that out as well. We've got upcoming episodes 
with Denko freaking Jones. I can't wait to get that one out. Huge fan of Denko Jones and that new album is fantastic. We've also got an upcoming episode with two of the members of In Theory, which is fantastic. Band that has a great new album. They've both been on here before. Looking forward to having them back. We've got JT Lux coming up. We've got Joe, T- Joe Cotella of Dead returning soon, as well as a couple other things that I need to announce. So be on the lookout for all that. It's always on the socials and always right here on this, this podcast. All right. Huge thank you once again to Med Farm, Sunset Tattoo, DEB Concerts, and Hell Hot Hot Sauce. And until next time. Thunder Underground, y'all.